Welcome to another edition of Steve's Speed Shop. Speed Shop is brought to you by Ensign Films. Drama, documentary and branded content. Find them at ensignfilms.co.uk. It's also brought to you by the Drivers' Union. Got a supercar? You need to join the Drivers' Union. You'll find them at thedriversunion.com. And it's brought to you by WarrantyWise. Does your used car need a warranty? WarrantyWise are the UK's biggest warranty provider, and you'll find them at warrantywise.co.uk. Mark Wilsmore is the leather-jacketed frontman of the Ace Cafe in North London, has been since its revival more than quarter of a century ago, which is how long I've known him. The Ace has spread its influence. There's now one in Beijing, believe it or not. There's one in Finland and there's one in Orlando, amongst others. And its appeal is very simple. It embraces petrol heads of all persuasions, just like we do on Speed Shop. My guest and my mate for quite a long time this week is Mark Wilsmore. We were talking about the nature of riding a motorcycle. And I think you and I are very much on the same page in that we have always considered motorcycles to be, first and foremost, transportation. And fun. Yeah, but... And my, fun. Most, yeah, but my, lots of fun. Yeah, but my point being, Mark, is that there are many people, people I know, and, and the, some of them are listening to this, so please don't take offence, lads. But for them, motorcycles are toys. They, they, and, and most of their motorcycle riding is to just ride round in a giant circle. <laughs> And, uh, arri- and arrive back at the place they set off from. Whereas I know that for you, a motorcycle is your principal means of transport, and it doesn't matter what season of the year it is. Or you, you, you know, whenever I meet Mark Wilsmore, you're on a motorbike. Well, it, it's probably to do as much as my I can say uh, affection for the machine and that the, the grin factor and the adrenaline and all those all those qualities. Um, it's probably as much to do as the environment, I mean, which London, very, very urban, metropolitan London, and lots of traffic. And with a bike, it doesn't really matter at all what traffic condition is. I can get through. and I will arrive. Well, I might be a bit late because they've shut, in this instance, I'll say there's an all-circuit and there's a helicopter on it fixing somebody and all that. But I can wheedle my way around on the bike and you're completely stymied in a in a car or a van. So I think it's a lot to do with the environment you're in. But but trust me, as we perhaps we were reflecting before before we got speaking, I don't get up and go, cool, it's raining, I can't wait to get out there on my bike. <laughs> it's just, just I know I'll get there on it. So where does it start for what for Mark Wilsmore? We've, we've known each other a long time, but I've never really heard the origin story, to uh, to put it into context. What's the first biking inspiration or experience that sets off a whole lifetime on bikes? I guess it's going to be pretty much like most of us. It's childhood and seeing them, hearing them and wanting one. And, and it, it, in my case, and given the sort of football bit of the moment, it, it, I'm of an age group not ever to have been to the ace. It shut by the time I was old enough to go there. But I was nine years old in 1966. And I can tell people to, the, to this day 
of how, as a nine-year-old at primary school, you were either a mod or a rocker in the in the playground. Uh, you know, boys doing what they do, as it were, etc. Uh, and I don't quite know where that would have come from, but that's certainly the the case in my childhood. But as a nine-year-old in 1966, I, I can proudly say um, I was at Wembley when England played Germany. A, a magical moment. I, I should then qualify this, that this was the England v Germany schoolboys international, not the World Cup. <laughs> <laughs> and the England schoolboys, I can't remember any thousands of kids there, it was a school trip, thousands of kids from all over the country. And, um, yeah, the England schoolboys lost. But hey-ho. But the other thing from 1966 is, again, as a nine-year-old, is my family had moved out from the environs of London to a really, really idyllic rural setting in Bedfordshire. It's kind of built up now around there, but it, it might just as well have been in the middle of Dartmoor uh, as a young, very youngster at that time. But it was right by, and I hope you've heard of the place, a place called Woburn Abbey or Woburn Park. It's better known to, today as Woburn Safari Park. But in 1966, the little village that he lived in at the time, right by one of what are called the gates into the park, was um, there was just streams and streams of motorbikes. And it's, it was the first BMF rally. There's thousands and thousands of bikes. And, of course, as, as a nine-year-old with other kids, and all these bikes, and there's just endless seas of bikes. And it's black leather jackets and... All the stuff you'd expect from 1966 is stuck in my head. Uh, and through that, you then learn about older lads who've got scrambles, as it was called at the time, scrambles bikes. And, ah, I go and see them. And then they very generously allow you to clean all the mud off them <laughs> and then have a go. Uh, and so it's sort of like introduced at a very young age. Can you remember the first bike you actually rode, Mark? The... It was being a scramble thing, or trying to ride a giant. I can't remember what it would have been, but it would have been a British bike of that moment, as it were. But the first one, the first two wheels, I remember whizzing about with my then best friend at school. Again, this is primary school age, so I guess it's going to be ten, eleven, something like that. His older brother was a mod, and he had three or four scooters, and of course he could only ride one at a time. Uh, I don't know whether we ever knew or not, but we'd take uh, <laughs> we'd take others of his scooters and whiz about on, on them. I and, can't uh, believe that Mark Willsmore of the Ace Cafe London, yeah, a, a, a legendary performance. He saw the bikes, got on a scooter, whizzed about on that, fell off, and then uh, got to get a proper <laughs> motorbike. <laughs> well, of course, the, as you know, my, my origins are very much involved with, with scooters. Um, although with mo- world, as it yeah, with yeah. motorbikes first, but then I was I was born in '64, so I'm kind of 15, 14, 15 when the whole mod revival thing kicks off. The Who's film, the Who's film Quadrophenia comes out. The message of which, if it has a message, is don't be a sheep, don't follow the herd, be your own person. Yeah. So yeah. me and my mates all immediately went out and bought exactly. <laughs> 
bought fishtail parkers <laughs> and scooters and formed a herd or a gang or whatever you call it and, and rode around on scooters. But the thing was, like a lot of people, we progressed from bolting things onto our scooters to cutting things off to try and yeah. make the damn things uh, lighter, go lighter go and go faster. And then my my sort of uh, my epiphany, if we can use such a posh word, or my sort of uh, I don't know my condor moment, <laughs> if we want to refer to nineteen seventies British TV advertising, was going to see a guy called Jeremy Howlett, who also who as well as having the best custom scooters in the UK, was also uh, a guy for motorbikes. And I've told this story many times. It's quite odd. The more I tell it, the more I think about it. It was such an odd thing to happen. I happened to be at his house, and he had his own house when he was, like, 19, a big detached house, because, um, again, I've told the story, he used to go across, his parents were divorced, and his, his father lived in the States, and his mother ran a sports shop, sportswear, in the UK. And when he came back from seeing his dad in California, he came back to Britain wearing, like, Vans trainers and Oakley sunglasses, and his mother... and his coolest cat in the town. Yeah, and his mother thought... I wonder if we could... I think, right, I've told the story. I, I'm, it's a long time ago. It, this may not be entirely accurate through the sort of fog of time, but basically, Jeremy and his mother made a lot of money selling American imported sportswear, and Jeremy bought a big mad house, and he customised his scooters, and he, and he bought, on this day, it was being delivered, a Yamaha FZR 1000. And weirdly, as I've said many times, as it was wheeled out of the van... He's turned to me. We didn't know each other that well and said to me, can you ride a motorbike, Steve? And I went, yeah, I used to ride motorbikes before I got on scooters. He said, do you want to go on it? And there was a voice in my head saying, for God's sake, whatever you do, don't get on that 1,000cc, 135-horsepower motorcycle. You came here on a Vespa. Uh... But I said yes, and I went off down the road and realised that in first gear, this Yamaha was faster than the Lambretta, which I'd spent not hundreds, but thousands of pounds on trying to make it go fast. And in first gear, this Yamaha was faster and it had another five gears to go. And once you've done that, it's very hard It's very hard to go back to trying to make... I've had that exact same conversation with people that have tried to make air-cooled VWs go very fast. They've spent thousands and thousands of pounds, and then they've got blown off by a sales rep in a Golf GTI. And but, they've just... that, the whole that whole picture, I, I absolutely get that. And yeah, we're, we're, if you ride two wheels, we're all tied by and large with the same brush. But there's this, I'm going to say, um, element where you've got to look the part as well. Whatever it is, if you're going to ride a scooter, it's no good wearing a black leather jacket and. Um, heavy motorcycle boots and your white sea boot socks that that's all a bit oinky no no you got you got to do it proper uh, and that was going to be ben sherman and i won't have to describe all the gear but no they, they, it, i'm very british i guess you know if you want if you want to be in the army you want you, you want to wear you want to wear that uniform every now and again and all it's, you know the, the 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 old parade dress as it were it's all part and parcel of it so mark you're a bit before me not much but a bit before me so when I started riding, you could have anything up to 250, and it didn't matter how powerful it was. So, of course, there was that, there was that era where the Japanese manufacturers went, 
Oh, so uh, it doesn't. <laughs> there's no restriction on the horsepower, but it can only be 250 and sent across those exotic 250s like the KR1S and the RGV 250 and, and, and stuff like that. What were the rules when you took to the road? Could you, no, mo- could you more no, or less ride anything? Been, 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 no, 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 not that old. It'd been the same as you. I can't remember the year now, but they bore you a bit of history. Right. So up until, I can't remember the years. The critical years are 64. Three and sixty-five. Now, up until one of those two years, you just went into the post office and um, filled in your gubbins if you were seventeen, and you got a provisional license. And with that provisional license, you could then ride whatever you liked, provided you displayed an L plate. And the other bit of law that changed was. Basically, all across England, the only speed limit was 30 mile an hour in town. Outside of town, arterial roads, like North Circular, for instance, there's no speed limit. Needless to say, all the carnage through the 50s and into the 60s, uh, those early 60s, um, this was unacceptable, eventually. And the public press get hold of it and the famous Daily Mirror headlines, Suicide Club and all the rest of it. And, and eventually Parliament brought in the legislation, which is that which I grew up with, and, and you, which was, OK, you can still go to the post office, fill in the form and get your provisional licence, L-plate, but you're limited to 250. And, of course, the other one is the speed limits came in, pretty much as they are to this day. And, and those, I can't remember which one's which, as I say, 63 and 65. So the time I'm riding, it, it, it is certainly the 250 era. And, and the irony of what you're describing there, I can remember seeing... Someone brought in load of old magazines, a bike magazine, really old bike mag from about 1980. If not, I can't remember when bike magazine came out. Can you remember when bike magazine came out? Mark Williams, wasn't it? Bike. Mark Williams, one of the one of the sort of uh, now largely unsung heroes. Yeah. I'd, I'd well, love him to come on this show. If anybody knows Mark or where he is or what he's up you've to, you've got to get him. You've got to get him. Well, because but, he he t- he he took. I think he'd been working already before he started bike. He'd been working on Rolling Stone magazine in the States. And he thought, because music was Mark's other passion apart from bikes, uh, there may be other things that people thought were Mark's passion, but let's not go into that. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and um, right, <laughs> Mark, please. Right, so, yeah, yeah um, and um, he brought a rock and roll attitude into motorcycle publishing at a time when the established publications were incredibly conservative and and, uh, and biased towards well, the well, British manufacturers. This story that's made me think of bike magazines. This particular issue, really old one, and it's that moment or the era where the front cover was a picture of a of a rider stood with his bike, typically a racer, and this front cover is the racer. I can't remember who it had been with his Laverda, a magnificent uh, ma- a magnificent piece of machinery. But as you look through the magazine all these years later, you can see that it's got a review in it, and this is why I think someone gave me it, it's got a review of the T140 Bonneville. And I'm sure many of the listeners, and you will know, the T140 Bonneville, sort of the mainstay of the last gasp of triumph up at um, Meriden. And um, it's a fantastic review. It's the best over seven, uh, 750 bike. I can't remember. It's, it's everything is accolades, accolade, accolade. And the review of the ride is, is terrific to read. 
And through the pages, you've got these adverts, little small adverts, which is, um, I don't know, Fred Bloggs' his bike shop, and all, bike shops all over the country, um, offering, saying that they've got these new Honda this and the Kawasaki that. And this is a moment where, say, the last gasp of triumph, top of the power, but you can see... Uh, thinking of myself here as a 250 generation, you'd be reading that and you'd be thinking, no, no, I want one of these Japanese things that goes much faster. Uh, and it's just as the um, growth, this extraordinary growth of the, of the Japanese machines when they came over, and, and we all know about the lightweights, but the, I think the master stroke in marketing terms that those with the Japanese big Japanese bikes pulled was they didn't call them calf racers. But they were calf racers, they got clip-ons, rear sets, sweatback pipes, typically single-seat things. They called them sports bikes, and, and they just flew out flew out the dealers as you march in further into the, like the tail end of the 70s and into the 80s, and, and they came to dominate, dominate the, the marketplace, of course. And, and it was this need for speed and looking, looking the part, as it were. I'm a racer. Yeah, but... You've got had and and continue to have a lifelong love, love affair with the whole ton up cafe racer rocker culture, which let me give you some years to see if you agree, Mark. It's heydays from what fifty eight to sixty four, or would it, you, can you it, be a it, bit it, more it's specific? Certainly coming coming to an end, so kind of sixty four, but I, I'd push the date back. A bit earlier than 58. Well, the reason I say that, Mark, is because I'm trying to remember when higher purchase became available in Britain because I think that made... Well, I don't think I know. That yeah, made a yeah. huge difference to the sort of motorcycle um, that a young man could aspire to because, of course, in the UK, before that, you had to pay the whole price in one go and you had to pay... Was it 40% sales tax as well on the price? I can't remember the figures, but in essence, before that came in, the only way most of society, if you like the common man, and most of us could borrow money, was off some villain at the end of the street, the tally man. And it was all crooked. Um, Well, that's why... Of course, we had a national debt, but the advent of our purchase has given rise to so that we all hmm. could have a debt. But, <laughs> it's just got but bigger and bigger ever it, since. <laughs> here's the thing, Mark. There's, there's, it, you know, like you, I probably spend too much time on the internet looking at uh, websites and Facebook uh, groups that are to do with vintage motorcycles. Yeah, and yeah. a lot of them will wax lyrical about the days of the Vincent Black Shadow and the Bruff Superior. And I think, well, that's all very well and good. But people like me and you from relatively humble beginnings, would have as much chance of being made the ruler of Mars as we yeah. would have of owning a Bruff Superior or a Vincent Black Shadow. You know, my dad worked in a paper mill, nine to five. He rode a bicycle to work with his lunch in a Tupperware and he took a flask of hot tea with him. You know, we, his motorbikes, my dad's bike ownership, once he was married and had four kids, was Honda Cubs or... Bikes that he could buy and flip, as I believe the modern parlance is, because like a lot of people, like a lot of men particularly, and women in this country, you'd have more than one thing. You'd have what uh, I believe the young people call a, call a side hustle, 
And my dad would, mm-hmm. would get offered an old car with a blown engine. He'd swap the engine. He'd sell it on. Somebody at work wouldn't be able to make the payments on a bike. My dad would take it off them, give them some money. But as soon as somebody offered him, because this is how he got his commando, which was a massive influence on me, I just thought it was the coolest thing ever. I still think the commando, when people ask me, what's your favourite bike? The answer is the Norton Commando. I've thought about it a lot, probably more than anybody should. But it's probably the Norton Commando. And it's probably something to do with the fact that one day my dad came home on one. And then somebody offered him more money than he paid for it. And he sold it in the blink of an eye without a backward glance. He hardly yeah. remembers it. When I talk to him about it, I go, Dad, you remember that yellow commando? And he's like, um, uh, oh, yeah, vaguely. <laughs> Dad, it made a massive impression on me. You know, I was like 12 or something like that. And I thought, wow, my dad's the coolest guy ever. But in the same way that I'll never forget the day he came home on it, I'll never forget the day about maybe a year later, maybe a bit longer, when he went to work on that and came back on a Honda Cub because he'd done a deal because he worked in a factory, he had four kids, and he had bills to pay. So he didn't. He wasn't allowed the luxury of being sentimental about motorcycles. It was like, or cars. You know, we used to go through, we used to go through crazy cars. We'd, have, we'd generally have sort of something a bit rusty and a bit creaky, but occasionally something a bit crazy would come our way. And I've, I've said this before, there was a rally car, which um, I think was a Chrysler Avenger Tiger. But again, he doesn't really remember because he just bought it, he fixed it up, he got it going, it wasn't going or whatever, and he sold it. And then there was a Lotus Elite, a white Lotus Elite, not the 59 one, not the fiberglass monocoque, the first fiberglass monocoque. The 70s one with the flippy-up headlights, mm. which are now gaining in value, having been at rock bottom for many years because they look like a piece of cheese, particularly the yellow. I always think if you went into a Lotus showroom and you said, can I have one of those in yellow, please? You'd probably just walk past a cheese shop and weren't quite, you know, subliminally affected by it. But um, the day he went on his commando and came back on a Honda Cub because, you know, somebody offered him... How did did you feel about that as a youngster? I was devastated. It was like... I I reckon you would be. (laughs) Yeah, but my dad couldn't care less because... the, the thing is, the more I hear about my dad, and I don't, I don't know if it's, a, if it's the same for you, it might not even be remotely the same for you, but the more I hear about my dad, the cooler he gets. In, only in the last few months, my dad's 84 now, in the last few months I've heard stories, stories about him. That the fact that he was in a fairly well-known skittle band, skiffle band, skittle, mm. skittle band, <laughs> a bit Freudian, um, he was in a well-known skiffle band and he used to ride... Um, he used to ride on the back of my uncle Cliff's Triumph, 650 Triumph, to gigs. And then he used to have to ride on the way back because Uncle Cliff used to get drunk. And more than a couple of times, um, he, he lost Uncle Cliff off the back of the bike. <laughs> and, that's, and I just think, so this is like six months ago having this conversation. And I said to my dad, Dad, why, don't, why didn't I know this? And where are the photographs of you playing in the band and photographs of you on Uncle Cliff's Triumph and all that? And, he's, and as he said to me, and we, we say this frequently on this, on this radio show. There aren't any photos because we were all too busy. And you just all think... All too busy, and, and, and it's only really into our respective adulthoods that cameras and ease of taking pictures now with mobile phones and all that. I've just it, talked it, to a guy who had a, who, who had a decade-long karting career. Do you know how many photographs of his, he's got of him actually racing a go-kart? 
one. He's got one photograph. Because, like he said, we were doing everything, driving to the circuit, preparing the car, and actually racing in it. Nobody said, oh, hold on a minute, let me just get a... Let's just take a picture. Too busy. Too busy living to take loads of pictures. Well, we are only here once, so you have to enjoy it while we're here. So... As they say, goes as it were. Are you admitting, having already admitted that you really started out as a bit of a modern scooter, which is quite a revelation, are you you admitting that your early forays onto the Queen's Highway was on uh, Japanese-built motorcycles, or was it always... Oh, certainly L-plates. Yeah. Oh yeah, and, and um, destroying them at quite a rate of knots because the combination of um, uh, an untrained rider uh, on discovering 250cc of Japanese power, two-stroke power, yeah, spent quite a lot of time in hospital, destroyed a number of motorbikes, and in that same sort of period discovered that I was completely useless with spanners or anything to do with machinery fixing it so yes i could dismantle them fine putting them back together nah. mm. uh, and uh, this kind of i'll say uh, i'll say a love affair of um brit iron that whole 50s 60s rock and roll rockabilly that all sort of comes together for me and i guess my age group tail end of the 70s and you've got a sort of revival of rock and roll you've got Matchbox the band Matchbox and Graham Fenton and, that. and he used to go to the Ace as a youngster with, with bikes and of course the crowning moment for uh, I say my particular interest as it were an age group was a stray catch 81 over here uh, well, and then there's full on indulgence into the, the black leather jacket yeah like Cadillacs with big you know, the old 59 Cadillacs and that, but actually I'm British. And we, we're a little bit different, a little bit different. Not, don't want to be American. Love the music, love some of the stuff, but it's a strange way of arriving at, at um, the black leather jacket, as it were. Well, even before that, Mark, there were bands like, even during the punk era, bands like The Clash and The Damned, and obviously Dave Vanian, the, the, the lead... Yeah. The lead man of the damned reg- regular... That, the that, that as a sound, though, that whole punk thing just went over my head. It, 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 never got into it at the time at all. Well, The Clash covered you know, Vince Taylor, didn't they? Brand new Cadillac yeah. and all that. There was a yeah, definite... Br- brilliant stuff, and it's only sort of into latter years that, that I'd say I'll discover punk. And, well, what, what I'd missed <laughs> as a consequence, but I was so immersed in, I, I, I say, Elvis and Gene Vincent, it, it, it didn't wander off that track. I don't think people would understand just how big the rock and roll revival was in the UK. Some well, of the biggest selling 70, bands... 72, yeah. that's the first concert at Wembley Stadium. Before that, it's just sports. But 72, the first concert, the London Rock and Roll Show... And, and since then, we, we take it as read that, that you know, bands you know, appreciate COVID and whatnot, but bands play at Wembley. But the very first one was 1972. And what was that? It was Chuck. It, I know Chuck Berry was on the bill. Was Little Richard? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's a huge bill, and if, if I recall correctly, I think Bill Haley. It was, like, was open by, by by Matchbox. And and just to sort of qualify and confirm what Mark's saying. I've been into this, and amongst the very best-selling bands of the early 80s were bands like Darts, um, yeah. Shaking Stevens, who obviously people yeah. might go, 
or Shaking Stevens and think of him as sort of pure bubblegum pop act. But I don't need to tell you previously to his huge... I mean, I think... No, I don't think I know because I've done my research on this. He was, alongside UB40, the best-selling singles artist of the early 80s in the UK. I think they're tied at around 40 top 20 hits in a, in a five-year period. It's just ridiculous. You think, yeah, he had a few hits, and you're like, no, 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 he had more than a few. There's pages and pages of it. And he was a 50s revival act. He was getting up there. Yeah, yeah. And, and so that whole culture was very much... It had started as a cult thing, and there were lots of rockabilly bands in London, uh, the Polecats, Guanabats, um, the whole psychobilly thing, Meteors, King Kurt, bands the, like the, that. The observation I'd make, though, is that as we get older, what I've come to realise, and I guess many of us do, is, is actually the, the repertoire or the menu that we've got available just improves with age, with the passing of time. Rather, you get a greater, greater array to select from. Oh, I like that. I like this. So, so I, I call it the menu just gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And that's reflected in what goes on at the ace, isn't it? Because it is. Some and, and people. Every generation. Every generation. This is you know this is the old bloke speaking, isn't it? Really. Every generation has got the same aspirations, same desires, and all the rest of it. But it, it, the only thing that changes is is that technology moves on and enables things to happen now that you couldn't have, you know, you don't need a jukebox no more, you can download it all, you can hear it on your iPhone and all the rest of it. Similarly with, with, with in this instance, motorbikes, suspensions light years better, tyres are light years better, brakes are light years better, even road surfaces are light years better than ever they were, and, and all this really changes the labels and, and, and the dress, <laughs> it's, you know, young and always want the latest and the, the newest, uh, whereas I venture to say you and I are quite happy. I've always worn these. Why have I tried to change them yeah. now, sort of thing? It's funny you say that, Mark, about road surfaces. I was I was thinking the other day about um, Leonard Setright, LJK Setright, the legendary motoring journalist. Jay Leno was always going on about him. A lot of people must think, who is this guy? I met him a few times. I sat next to a, a play on a next to him on a plane a couple of times for a few hours and got talking to him. He was a fascinating guy, a Jewish gentleman, uh, quite quite observant in his in his belief, and was obsessed with uh, four things: Honda cars, motorcycles, jazz, and handguns. He was, and he could he could give you chapter exactly, Mark. He could give you chapter on verse on any of those subjects. And I remember asking him about his Douglas Dragonfly motorcycle, hmm. because you'd know this, but a lot of people will look at the BMW uh, Boxer Twin. And I've always had a problem with Boxer Twin, because they say, yeah, it's a boxer because it punches out to the sides, and you go, I've done some boxing, and I've watched a lot of boxing. Do you know what you don't do in boxing? Punch yeah. to the side. Because the person... Yeah, so why it's called a Boxer Twin, I've always had trouble with that. But anyway, they look at that arrangement of a Boxer Twin engine and shaft drive to the rear wheel and go, yeah, the old BMW, you go, whoa, 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 wait a minute. They totally copied that off Douglas, a British company. And, of course, the Douglas Dragonfly... Boxer twin, shaft drive to the rear wheel. And I remember reading a piece, a great, he was a great writer. He could be incredibly pompous, but I quite enjoyed his, pompous, his pomposity because I'm not averse to a bit myself, as people who listen regularly would know. But um, he wrote a piece about riding from somewhere near St Albans into, into central London. And, of course, he came, down the, he came through Archway and down the Holloway Road. 
And I lived, as you know, I lived around that part for for a few years when I was in London. And um, he he parted company with the Douglas at speed uh, when he was outside Highbury and Islington tube station because, of course, back then the it went from tarmac to cobbles. And get this, not just cobbles, wooden cobbles. <laughs> I mean, how dangerous is that on a motorcycle? I mean, he just, like he said, he parted company with his with his uh, his Douglas Dragonfly, which were flying down the road. Uh, his first concern, his third concern was for his own physical well-being. His second concern was for his motorcycle. And his first concern was for his clarinet, which was attached... <laughs> <laughs> which was attached to the carrier on the back of his bike. What an ex- I'll, You know, where are people like that now in motorcycle, uh, in, in journalism or, or motorcycle journalism? Come on, you don't get people like that. I first checked that I was okay, and having retrieved my motorcycle, I was most anxious to establish the status of my clarinet. <laughs> and you just think, what a guy! <laughs> I actually saw those wooden blocks, Mark. I was, uh, I was, I was on a visit to London, and I was up that part of the part of North London, they were digging up the road and there were these three blokes digging up the road and they were looking at them because they just sort of penetrated the top layer with the jackhammers and one of them was holding one and I told them that story and they just looked at me like I was a madman because I went over to them and I went, you know what they are, don't you? And told them the story about they used to be wooden cobbles because of course when uh, horse in the era of the horse and carriage, steel banded wheels on stone cobbles would have been incredibly noisy so if you had money you would pay in the nice parts of town for them to lay wooden cobbles, which are a lot yeah. quieter. We're staying with roads for the moment. I was yakking about them. Now, people often think today you get potholes and drain covers that are sunk or protruding from carriageway surface and all the rest of it. But the engineering of roads is one thing and has moved on light years from yesteryear. But the Big changes have been also things like, um, even in my youth, that you know, all all vehicles would be dripping oil to varying degrees. So if you were at a set of lights, let's say the North Circular, the illustration I can give, I'm so familiar with it, if you were North Circular, the traffic lights are a road, there'd be, much, just as there is today, traffic jam galore, but back then, all those motors heating up and whatnot, all dripping as they sit at the lights. And wagons, you know, modern-day HGVs, of course, the you know, driver and his mate, whenever they stop for fuel, invariably, they're having to grease up the um, steering, the brakes. And those lumps of grease, as they get warm under a wagon sat at lights, drip. So when... You know, a bit of a damp atmosphere or whatever, you, you're nailing it down a stretch of road, which you're reasonably familiar with. You know that with you coming up to those cross crossroads, or use the illustration, say, our road, North Circular, you know, you know for about 100 yards either side, that is going to be skatey. You put in a bit of damp atmosphere in, those lights change, you're tempted not to touch the brakes because you've got crappy tyres, crappy brakes and all the rest of it, and just keep going. And we forget how vehicles, you know, the, the quality or standard of vehicles now is just light years beyond what they once were. And as a consequence, the, the, all sorts of other bits play a part as well, clearly. But, you know, the, the levels of carnage have gone down through through 
technology and engineering as, as much as training and, and, and whatnot, which just did not exist years past. So, so some, you know, our roads are terrible. And you start really looking at it, you, you find quite to the contrary in reality. It was far, far worse years past. Can you still enjoy riding old bikes on modern roads, Mark, or is it just has it just become too difficult? No, I, I, I can I can I can enjoy it. It, it would be the starting of them. <laughs> <laughs> With knees that are getting proper knackered, you know, f- f- falling off and getting old and all the rest of it. So yeah, I, I I do love old bikes. And you mentioned Jay Jay Leno again. Most of us have sort of our age group, we all want to be Jay Leno's. You know, if we had the space and the money, we'd have one of them. One, we'd fill it in no time. Do you know what? I don't know, Mark. I, I, I love the guy. I think he is the foremost enthusiast. He's, uh, he's the foremost petrolhead on the planet. And his enthusiasm, and his, not just his enthusiasm, but also his knowledge. It's coupled yeah. with knowledge. But when he's in his garage and he's talking about saying, oh, yeah, we, you know, I drive this one all the time and I think, you can't, mate. You can't. <laughs> this, this, you've got to a point. I, I'm sorry, I love you, but I don't believe you. Because it's like, you know, I've got... I know you've got a few bikes, and I know you won't tell me how many you've got, and I wouldn't ask you, because that's rude. And you've got a couple of collectible cars, or at least one collectible car. Now, and I won't, and I won't ask you about that either, because um, I've got... How many cars have I got now? Four, five. Right, five, four bikes. And it's silly. And I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm reducing yeah. it because what I generally do is I ride one of the motorcycles and I drive one of the cars. And the other f- one of the cars, I haven't driven the Jag, I haven't driven for about four years. Uh, the Reliance Scimitar, I haven't driven for about 18 months. Uh, one of the bikes hasn't moved. One of the bikes hasn't moved, the Triumph. I bought it in London. I came into London on the train. I bought it. I rode up to Crazy Horse, their new spot. It was the day they opened their new garage near Oxford. I went up there, stopped there, I rode it home, I put it in the garage, I threw a sheet over it. I haven't touched it since. <laughs> How ridiculous is that? What is it wrong? Is, what is wrong with us? I'm busy. And, and you, 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 we all go through these phases, these stages, I think, in our lives. And, and, and indeed, I had 14 motorbikes, but that yin and yang that just sort of spoke of referencing Jay. It still niggles, and I still see stuff. Oh, I'd love one of them. You've been to his garage, haven't you? But eventually, I came to the conclusion: what on earth I've got all these for? Yeah, I, I don't have the space. I don't have the money. I can't afford a mechanic for every blooming thing that goes wrong. Being an yeah. idiot that I am with with spanners, and, and I sold the lot, and I've got two bikes now. I've got an old, best described as a barn find, and. I mentioned the Daily Mirror and that headline Suicide Club, and, and it's the very bike that's in that photograph. The Royal Enfield oh, Constellation. Yeah, that, yeah, Royal Enfield. But the bike that I ride every day and get wet on, as, as I've already mentioned, yesterday got absolutely drowned because the weather forecast was completely wrong and got caught out. But it's a, it's a modern triumph. Press the button, it starts, it fits me, gets through that solid traffic that can often be on the North Circular with ease. And the irony there as well, people will come along the ace, oh, they've got the London traffic, blah, 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 and all the rest of it, and the cameras everywhere. And, and, and I, I genuinely say, I love it. When you're riding in that heavy traffic, 
filtering and whatnot. Okay, you're not doing 70s, 90s, 130s or anything, but the concentration required and that singular focus to get through the traffic produces exactly the same adrenaline rush as you'd get at huge speeds on an open road. We had a great ride back from... Do you remember we'd gone to the Royal Hospital at Chelsea? There were three of us, and, and two of those, two of those, us were me and you. And we went back. We got back to the, there was, in fact, there was a large group, but the three of us stuck together. And when we got back to the Ace, we got back there quite a bit before anybody else. <laughs> not not used to the traffic, I guess. Not not used to it. Yeah. I love traffic. Love traffic. That's that's. Gives me the buzz. Do you know what? I'll tell you uh, something now. And that's about... addictive. It's addictive. Isn't yeah. it? It's adrenaline. It's, 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 your body produces it. It's a drug. And let, you get addicted to it. Let me tell you something about traffic and the difference between London traffic and Manchester traffic. Because Manchester is getting up there in terms it's of... It's always raining up there. It's always raining, Mark. Yes, well, that's I've, true. I've, I've seen the Lowry pictures. <laughs> it's, not, it's, not a, it's not a sunny moment. Uh, well, <laughs> right. So what about? No, I'll, I'll, I'll salute Andy Burnham, though. I'll salute Andy Burnham. No, let's not go to politics. Okay, let's not Andy do that. Burnham. Okay, mid July, I'm looking out the window, and if I had to describe the colour of the sky, I would. If I was, if it was a Farrow and Ball paint in a nice uh, in their catalogue, I would describe the Manchester sky today as muddy puddle. That that, 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 would, that would be the description. And it's the middle of July, so you can imagine what it's like in winter. No, but my point being this. So I lived in London, all told, for two, two, two periods, maybe five years in total. Um, the traffic, people drive fast, but there's a, if, there, if there can be, there's a flaw. In Manchester, it's much more stop-start, and it's it's much harder to read. In London, it was like everybody was driving too fast, but everyone was doing it. So it was like, right, OK, I get it. Everybody's driving too fast, but you know that I'm in a motorcycle and that I'm probably going to go into that gap and then I'm going to try and squeeze through there because it's London and you know. The problem with Manchester is it's kind of... They've not really got, got into that flow thing. It's mm. It's a bit hesitant. It's like... I'm either on the brakes or on the throttle, and I feel like I feel like go, going making some sort of public information film and saying, "Well, I don't know if, that, if, that, if that's like a, a, a I'm saying a modern phenomena, because older guys who are because of the acts obviously that have come to me over the years who've, who've come down here from up north, up your way, would tell me about Manchester Ringway and racing around there." And I think the cafe the, the always to go was, um, I think it's called Manchester Ringway. But Skyways. Port, and and it, whatever it, the cafe was is now sort of like a hotel complex. Yeah. And that, that had been, like, like, I'll say, the equivalent of the North Circular and um, you know, the old tun-up bit and all the rest of it up, up, up the other end of the world. Mate, they used to sneak on to the runway because it was a... <laughs> they've told me, because it was a provincial airport. Uh, it was a provincial airport, you know, and... And it used to close at a certain time of night. And in the summer, they used to hang them out in that cafe, you, which at one point, I think it was called Skyways Cafe. Yes, it was, that's it. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. It. Well yeah, done. It was called Skyways. Yeah, I, I, I knew that. Uh, yeah, I've forgotten it. Yes, that's well, it, Skyways. I'm like you, man. I, f- I forget so much. Well, it's your I, neck of the woods. Yeah. yeah, it's my neck of the woods. And I can remember that. I can remember that the 1950s forward slash 60s cafe that the motorcycle toughs used to hang about in was called Skyways. But sometimes I can't remember my partner's birthday or, you know, stuff. anyway. So, yeah. um, 
but I can remember that. And they said, oh, yeah, they used to hang around waiting for the staff to leave. And then they'd sneak on the on the runway and do, like, flat-out runs, like, to, you know, fettle their bikes up and down. Sort of, you know, they'd have, like, a load of carburetor jets in the pocket and they'd be going, right, I'm going for another run now. <laughs> you know, so yeah. they'd come back and go, no, it needs a, no, it needs a bigger jet. Put, take that one out, put this one in. You know, they were using it for fettling their... I mean, this that sounds like an awfully long time ago. What's the... What do you, Can I just bang the drum for modern triumph and can you also do that since oh, john yeah, since yeah, john blow revived the company i mean I, I really don't think that that guy who's a i wouldn't say secretive but he's a businessman who came from construction uh, acquired triumph people say because only because he bought the land at meriden that the factory had stood on and was either persuaded or he decided himself to revive triumph and i don't think they've put a foot wrong since 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 it was, uh, no, it all started I, up again. You know, totally, but totally, I'm a total subscriber there. And, and, and you know, wherever the idea came from, no idea. I've heard about the, the account that you just related before many a time. But whatever that background is, hey ho. But what he, what, what, what's been delivered is just, a, 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 I'm going to say, an epic story. Absolutely epic. A, every step it would seem has been a measured, calculated, thought-through step, and it's just got better and better and better. And, and for what it's worth, with, with, with the, um, uh, the, mach- the model I, I particularly enjoy, I, I wouldn't want to ride it up to Manchester, for instance, but the, the Triumph, um, given my age group and all, all that, but it, it's a Triumph Street triple. And over the years, I've, I think I've had virtually all the Triumph speed triples as they've come out and each time there's been a new model launched and then you've read i get to read the review about it in mcn or bike or you know whatever publications and it would the the journalists will be writing it's got this it's better than that and all these bits and pieces about how much it's improved and i think how can they do that and then when i eventually get on one you then realize yeah, it has improved and every every I'd say generation of the bike has just got better and better and better. You know, top marks and every success. You know, British success story. I mean, we've seen, haven't we, both of us, so many attempts to relaunch legendary marks from the history of motorcycling that right from the start you've thought, you've thought whether yeah, it's, no, 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 you know, no, no, you've no. thought, no, this is not going to work. This is... Was I with you when we met that guy from Confederate? But, but, but then a lot of them, I think we were, weren't well, we? There's a good few. We won't put, I won't put names to it. I'll leave that to you. But it's a good... The, the best example of um, uh, the scams at work, as it were, because a lot of them, I'm sure, have just been scams all oh, along. I think I know it, what you're going to say. Is, is, the, is John DeLorean. It's a car, I appreciate, not, not two wheels. But... You know, massive amounts of, in this instance, government money yeah. pumped in for arguably a noble cause. Not a bad-looking car, well, a revolutionary car in many ways, and in a, in a bit of um, island, I think it's Belfast, wasn't it? Mm. It's Belfast, which... With no tradition of... work and all the rest yeah, of Yeah, no tradition of automotive engineering, but, yeah, yeah. as you say, admirable but, principles. But the whole thing was a scam. Well, I don't know if it was... Do you know what, Mark? I honestly don't know if it was. I don't know if it was an attempt to defraud um, the UK taxpayer 
of many millions of pounds, which is what ended up happening. I honestly think it was someone's... We've had a chap on the show previously. Well, perhaps not in the scam of um, let's set out to do something, but it's like, I'm going to say, giving a 12-year-old a million quid to go and start a new business. He's saying, hang on, what have you just done? You're giving well, it to him. Yeah, well, what I to thought... what? Yeah, what I thought it, you it, were going to say but, was... But I wouldn't say necessarily it was set out as, but it, it was for all the reasons that yeah. I wouldn't give him the money. Mm. He's a great designer, great innovator and all, all that sort of thing, but it, it never ran a business. Well, like I say, we've had Barry Wills, who was the first person that John DeLorean hired... Barry Wills, who'd previously been at Reliance and Jaguar. John DeLorean hired him. He was the first guy who he hired when he came to the UK. And Barry's written two books, both of which I have and have read, about the whole DeLorean project. And it's very interesting. But here's the thing, Mark, and you can listen back to those shows. You can listen back, by the way, this is the first time I've done this, to all of the Speed Shop shows by... You know, you can go to Anchor FM, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts from, all the old shows. We've been doing this for six years. There's a lot of old shows, and there's some, there's some really good ones. There's some ones that aren't that great, but, you know, some of them are really good. Anyway, um, I thought you were going to say Norton. I, thought, I, I just guessed that you... I was going to leave that to you. <laughs> well, I didn't want to say it, because... I'll t- <laughs> right, I'll tell you something. I'll tell you something. You know my partner, obviously. Mm. We met at the Ace. Me and my partner met at the Ace Cafe. So, in some ways... I have you to uh, blame for the demise of my first marriage, and uh, no, no, don't mean that. No, I, no, I'll, I'll, no. It was, you know, it was pretty much all done by the time that I met my my wonderful partner. At, it was fate. It was fate. It was kismet. Thank you, Mark. No, but um, she called me from Canada and said, "Have you seen that clip that's doing the rounds?" And it was when Norton, the whole Norton edifice, House of Cards, came crashing down around Stuart Garner's head about, what, a year ago? A year ago, maybe a bit more than a year ago. And it was a clip which they were showing on all the news programmes as they reported the, the scandalous end in, in the, the last revival of Norton because there'd been more than one attempt to revive. Possibly the greatest name in the history of British motorcycling. We discussed that later today. But in the clip, it showed Stuart Garner, who was the guy who was behind Norton at the time, getting out of an Aston Martin at the Le Mans 24-hour race. And I hadn't seen it. I brought it up online, and I was as it showed him getting out, I was begging them to end that clip because I thought, in a few seconds' time, you'll see me and Karen getting out of the Aston Martin behind Stuart Garner. Because <laughs> we were in the car behind him. Because, like, well, yeah, because I thought, I am going to get so much stick. People are going to go... What were you doing with that guy? But it was but, it was. But, but you weren't using other people's money. No, we'd just been invited <laughs> by, you know, by a sponsor to the Le Mans twenty. And I met the guy, and he and he's, here's the thing, he seemed genuine. And I'm going to say this out loud now because I met the guy. Well, I... the, th- the thing, the thing for me for Norton, it, it's as you've already remarked, you know, a great British mark. Possibly it, the greatest. It, it, it's, it, mm. it, it, it's up there on a pedestal from the Norton Commandos, the Dommies, and obviously, uh, obviously the Manxes. But when when the spot came out, it's like oh, it's, it's a bit. It's not quite there. You haven't, you know, mm. the, the model to follow was Triumph. They, they were there doing it and yeah. whatnot. So it it didn't quite work for me from from in that perspective. Yeah. Her, her, Heroic, oh, I don't know, it could have been. Well, it seems, it, the whole Norton thing, and, the you know, lots of people 
feel very angry about what happened. And it's it's all it's, it's all a tragedy. It's a great, great. It tragedy. was, and it's it's been taken but on. It, but in the fullness of time, it may well come to pass. Just just like I'll say there, say triumph at Meriden. In the fullness of time, it may come to pass that that's the best thing that happened. That Meriden closed down and John Bloor got it. It may come to pass in, in the future, we don't know. Well, Mark, people... That, that Norton have gone, but whoever comes along with it next time might well be the person that do it properly. Well, it is. It's it's an Indian company now, and who knows, they, they may bring... But they may have the resources to, to, to do what Stuart Garner couldn't do. Stuart Garner, this is going to sound controversial, but I'm going to say it anyway, he reminded me of a sort of Preston Tucker type guy, and you'll know who Preston Tucker was, the Tucker <laughs> Torpedo, a, a car which was kind of, in many ways, the DeLorean of its era, where it was yeah. a very talented yeah. guy, a very charismatic guy, who was able to raise some money, but then found out that if you put your head above the parapet and took on the big three of Detroit, you couldn't just do it with some money. You needed an almost endless amount of money, because if yeah. you came into their... So if you strayed into their sites, they would open fire because that was their modus operandi. That was their MO. If, and it's the same with Stuart Garner. I think that he I, thought... I, I, I think I'll, he I'll thought... Get, no, I'll this is just what I think, Mark. I think he thought that if he got the whole thing, if he got the ball rolling and he sold enough bikes, he could then... He would then get up ahead of steam and everything else would come with it. But he fell victim to the same problem that so many small start-up or those reviving great names from the history of motoring fall victim to, cash flow. You get to a certain point in the proceedings where you run out of money and you are desperate because you put your heart and soul and an enormous amount of cash, which you may have gone and borrowed off other people and they're going to want back. And And, so you will do... And there's a lot around the world today arguably because of COVID and lockdowns, are in exactly that same sort of position. Yeah, but what and, I'm saying and, is... And the temptation, you know, I think, again, British industry years past, uh, is Lady Docker, you know, where they're yeah. taking the money out of the, out of the business and spending it on sort of gold-plated Daimlers with leopard skin seats and all the rest of it. Why hasn't somebody made a documentary about Lord and Lady Docker? That's a fantastic story, isn't it? It is. It's a, a, Absolutely extraordinary story. The show, and she had, she'd already had, I think, not just one but two much older wealthy husbands who she'd managed to put in a box and in the ground before she even met Bernard Docker, and so it was. And then, in some ways, she was ahead of her time, wasn't she? She was. Well, she was because she was. She was all about the bling. She was, in some ways, she was like a sort of. Kim Kardashian of the fifties. Do you know what I mean? Would you yeah, Would you yeah, go with yeah, that? Yeah, I get that. I get that. I can't, 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 I can't say I've watched the Kardashians, but I know what you mean. I know what you mean. But where I was coming from there is is the temptation is is, is oh well, it's, it's all thinking to spend it while we can. <laughs> yeah, but it's right. If you don't know who she was, um, Lord and Lady Docker. And she managed to spend um, quite a lot of money on. Didn't she invite? Didn't she famously invite a lot of miners to to stay on their yacht with them? Something like. Yeah, I think she. Yeah, yeah, I'm pretty sure that she did. 
she was the queen of the of this sort of PR stunt. And then, and then, you know, 30, 40 years later, it would become standard practice that people would do this sort of thing. And yet, at the time, it was very much frowned on by the shareholders of uh, BSA who called, a, I think, an extraordinary, what's called an extraordinary gen- general meeting, where they, uh, they threw out uh, Bernard Docker and his party-loving, uh, bling-obsessed missus. <laughs> I wonder where that car is now, the one with the sort of zebra skin upholstery and, and the gold-plated handles. Oh, we should try and, try and track down. That'd look, yeah. good, that'd look good outside the ace, wouldn't it, Mark? It, it would, it would. It'd be, fit, it'd be fitting for tonight because it's classic car night as it happens. That's it for another edition of Steve's Speed Shop. If you want to listen to it again... Don't worry, there's always the podcast, or you can listen to it here on Fab. There's a repeat on Saturday. See you next week.